You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you you'll want to listen to find out what he has to say about communicating with agents the right way. Because you'll soon work out who is genuine and who's not, because when these properties come back to market, have a look at the guide that was on it compared to the price that they're now putting on it, and you'll soon be able to work out who are the ones that you should go and speak to, who are generally going to be able to help you and be honest and straight with you in the process of buying a home. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp, and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. This week, we are picking the brains of Michael Harris, principal of Rain and Horn Newtown in the heart of Sydney's inner west. He started his real estate career back in the same year I started, in 2001, and after joining the Rain and Horn Newtown team in 2006, he went on to become a director and owner in 2012. Michael's always sold property in and around this suburb, so I guess it should come as no surprise that according to Rate My Agent, he's the number one agent in Newtown for a number of sales and the most recommended agent for Newtown since 2014. Well done. Michael prides himself on the depth of his local market knowledge, a strong commitment to providing sound advice, exemplary service and excellent sales results. He says he loves what he does and we are keen to find out some of his tricks of the trade. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Michael, thank you. One of the things that I guess in the investment world, if you were looking for an investment advisor and you went to see a few different investment advisors, you'd find there'd probably be three different types. The first one you would go see and they would say, look, I know exactly where the world's going. I'm going to outperform the market by you know, 2% next year. And you should really use me because I'm the smartest guy in the room. You know, The second guy you'd probably go to and go, and they would say, look, I don't really know what's going to happen. I know I can give you a pretty good result and I'll get you market-like returns, and, you know, but you're pretty safe through me. And then the third option, you'll probably go to someone and go, look, I have no idea where the market is. I'm just going to get you an index kind of like return and that's all you need to do. In the real estate market, you've probably got agents that I guess do things exactly the same. And if you're trying to sell your property, you've got three different types of agents. How do you think that that plays out in the real estate market? I mean, obviously there are different types of agents and at the moment in this particular marketplace, we're seeing fairly low stock levels. Um, and I always find when the market gets to the point where there's less stock to sell, then the more excited an agent will become in pricing a home. And when you say excited, you mean overly positive? Overestimating. Overestimate, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I use that word overexcited because I often go through this with a vendor and I don't want to say like I'm a, a negative to other agents, but I always say to an owner in this situation, and I've said it quite a few times in the last month or two, to me, if an agent comes in and overprices your home in the marketplace, then all they're doing is losing your opportunities because if it's overpriced in the marketplace, then the buyers won't come through the door. Buyers are educated. It's not like a market we're in 20 years ago where there wasn't the internet. 20 years ago, we could put a just listed 
letter into your mailbox and you would call us because you don't have any information at your fingertips. Very, very different today. <laughs> so to me, by overestimating the value of the property to list the property just means that you're robbing the opportunities from your vendor because you're sending those buyers to other properties. As I said, they, they know the product, they know values most of the time. So I find that as a really um, an important part uh, of the process. If you ask me where do I sit in those categories, I'm probably, I'm probably a little conservative on my estimates because I find that if you can get it as real as possible and make your owner understand that you've got it real, then the relationship that you build throughout that process is a good, is a good uh, relationship. Um, hopefully it's a lasting relationship and uh, in doing so, you know, you come out the end of it achieving what you've said and hopefully a little bit more. Yeah, it's very interesting you say that because I know a lot of people selling their home would probably make that mistake. They would probably go for the agent that has actually overpromised, and because they believe that they can get 2.2 million for it, even though you've come in at 1.9. In your situation, I'm sure you'd be able to talk a person selling around that. But in the investment world, they usually go for the person who's overpromising. So it's it's a very interesting dynamic there that I think agents have to deal with. Chris, I agree, and not all owners do in the sense that not all owners can you talk them around again it's it's a very relevant topic for me at the moment because it's the conversations i'm having on a daily basis in the homes of, of my potential vendors and uh you know that is i was at one recently where you know it was a a property it was you know entry level house for the area an agent had come in and told him it was worth 1.1 to 1.15 and I almost fell off my chair realistically, this house is probably worth around the $900,000 mark. Right. And I sat down with this owner and I said to her, okay, and I, and I, I tried to explain to her that, you know, that, that this information is incorrect and I went through sales. And it's one of awkward, the things, isn't it? It's really awkward. Yeah. One of the things she said to me was, but this agent believes in this. It doesn't mean it's going to get it. That doesn't mean that the buyers are going to believe in this. Yeah. So I threw it back at her and I said, okay, a property sold on your street last year. It was a one-bedroom house fully renovated. It sold for a million and thirty. So if that sold for a million and thirty, and we know the market has softened, how can you get one one to one one five? And all of a sudden, the penny mm. dropped. She said to me at the end of it, the agent that she was really keen to go with was a great salesman, and 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 the energy that he come through with, and and all of that stuff. She called me negative Nelly, but by the end of the appraisal, I had her on board. She was like, mm. you know what, I understand, and I said to the same thing. Don't lose your opportunities by overpricing your property in the marketplace. So how do you then deal with buyers? So in, in the sense that you've got, you know, you've had to educate your vendor, obviously, to get the listing in the first place. And yes. so that way in your your head, you've got a good vendor, you know, someone who's going to recognise a good opportunity or a good buyer when they come. So then on the flip side of that, the market has softened, but you're saying that there's a stock shortage. So yes. clearly there's some pressure out there for buyers when they find a property that they want to buy, and particularly with entry level as well. How do you then work the buyer? to get the buyer educated and confident enough to, to do something. To, to make the move, yeah. Um, two things. First of all, just on the stock level, as you know, Veronica, there's stock out there, but it's a, there's a fair amount of rubbish as oh, well. Oh, most of it's rubbish. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> and that's what I mean. There's property out there, but I'd hate to be a buyer at the moment in this mm. marketplace because the quality is just not there. Yeah. Why were there? Can you give us an example of what you see is, is actually rubbish? Poorly, poorly <laughs> not located. But poorly located, you know, not, not the most desirable location for that particular suburb they're looking in. Um What's you that know, train tracks? Yeah, train tracks, you know, narrow streets. Um Alzo. 
Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Housing Commission within the area. There's a lot, in which, that area, which is yeah. a little bit disappointing because I, I have a different approach to Housing Commission. I, I mean, you know, there's some really good streets for argument's sake in Newtown. Look at Forbes Street; it's got Housing Commission yeah. at the end of it. It's a premier street. They never have an issue. Look, there's mm-hmm. Housing and there's Housing. Yeah, there is. And and there are certainly yes. um, some years back, I had a client come to me. They'd found a property in a particular street in Glebe, for instance. And when I went and met them there and went through this particular house, they hadn't engaged us at this point. They basically said we found a property, we really want you to help us buy it. So I I go and have a look at the house because I thought, oh, I'm not sure you want to buy it when I'm going to tell you what I have to tell you. I said, look, look around you. I think that this is one of the very few owner-occupied houses in this street. And I called, there's a police liaison officer. And so I contacted the police liaison officer and she named for me pretty much the, the trouble houses all along. And my own research showed me that in four blocks, only six houses were privately owned. The rest were all social housing. And that's not to say social housing is bad. I think it's obviously very necessary, very necessary. But there are some areas and pockets where you have a very, very undesirable element that are basically wrecking havoc in the neighbourhood and you don't want to be buying in that street. Agree. But as an uneducated buyer, and I imagine Newtown is kind of, as as the eastern suburbs or the northern suburbs, a lot of people who have maybe never lived in Newtown are considering Newtown. Mm -hmm. Do you find that's something, a mistake that you, you see quite common? That, you know, uneducated buyers who haven't lived in the area before are actually buying in, in undesirable streets? Mm. It depends on what you call an undesirable street, for argument's sake. A house on an easy road or a railway line it might be an undesirable street, but it's an entry level for a certain person. Example being, um, this was a few years ago now and it's only happened once, but, you know, I, I had a house that was on a really busy road. It was ended up being purchased by a hearing impaired person. Perfect house. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, it doesn't happen very often, but perfect no, house. that's a match, man. Yeah, heaven. yeah, you know, it's an affordable, they, they get it at a, at a lesser price because of the elements that are around this and, and the location of the home, but for them, it, win. yeah, there's, there's no issues. So, I guess if you've got an ugly view, you just need to sell it to a blind person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> so that's really taking it to the next level of there's a buyer for every house. <laughs> it is interesting you're talking about the rubbish that's out there. Yes. And I know when I was a selling agent, I used to think that every house is okay at the right price. Now, mm. now I've been a buyer's agent for over a decade. I realise that that isn't actually the truth. Mm-hmm. So what would you say are there elements or characteristics that a good property needs to have? Yeah, look, again, it comes down to the need and the reason for the person buying this particular property. But, you know, things that I think are important is not not a busy road or across the road from from railway lines, for argument's sake. Potential. You know, I think that's really important because it depends on how long you're going to live in this property. But, you know, is there time that you can reinvest into the property to get a greater return when it comes time to put it back on the marketplace? You know, things like is there off-street parking or potential for off-street parking? Again, they, they're they big uh, ticket winners when it comes to selling a home. I mean, again, not everybody wants it, but there is a massive difference between a house that doesn't have the opportunity or have parking in comparison to the one that does and the differences of the level of inquiry that you get on that particular property as well. As in buyers will just won't look at it if there's yeah, no parking. Yeah, they may not even have a house, but they understand yep. the value of having that, especially on their turn to come back and resell the property itself. Mm-hmm. The elephant in the room is all about the elephant and you know our emotions driving our decisions. What are the things that you see in the top properties that actually really get the elephant going? Presentation. 
Hundred percent, and I think that's a bit apparent. Um, again, you look at the profession over the last twenty years. Twenty years ago, houses weren't styled. In fact, we'd walk in with just our own camera and take a photo, and you know, you'd make a brochure and you'd put a text ad in the paper and open up on a Saturday. It was a pretty, it was a pretty average approach to selling houses, but that's what was done. I mean, it's yeah. become a long way these days, and I get it. I mean, presentation is really important. Um, gone are the days of circling a text ad on a Saturday morning, having a coffee. You know what you're looking at by midweek that week and you make a decision normally from photos that are on the internet. And I always say to my owners, you know, if you can't get the presentation right, the chances are that you're going to lose the opportunities because your competitor down the road, if they've got it right, and I use the example without being stereotypical, you've got two gay guys that live down the road. They've got impeccable presentation. They come to market. You've got your house here that you've got a family living in. And I get families can't present like, you know, double income, you know, style of living. Yeah. (laughs) But the, different, the, the, the buyer doesn't equate to that and mm. the chances are they're going to go down and fall in love with that property and they do fall in love with presentation because it's mm. often you'll go to a house on settlement to do the final inspection. Uh-huh. There's no furniture You were taking all. the words out of my mouth, Michael. Yeah, and they just go, oh, my God, did what I buy this bought? house? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yes. <laughs> I, I rem- thought it was coming with the furniture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that. Look, I have to say that certainly, you know, as a buyer's agent we really work through taking the rose-coloured glasses off our clients' eyes so they do understand exactly what they're buying. You're not buying the furniture, you're not buying the styling. But, yes, when I was a selling agent, I remember that sinking feeling quite often when you could see it in the buyers' faces that they're thinking, what have I bought? It's not what I remember. No, no. I mean, I had a house recently um, uh, this year on the market and, the presentation, my owners lived in this house, so it wasn't it wasn't a styled home. And you can tell styled houses, they they look fairly much the same, but you know, it, it got works. no wardrobes. Yeah, they've got no wardrobes, <laughs> they've never any clothes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this house was their presentation. It's how they lived. And I would have to say it's probably the best presented home I've ever sold in twenty years on the market. So wow. you know, in the marketplace. So yeah, beautifully presented home. And only a few of the buyers coming through looked into the detail and could see through that. And one buyer said to me, she took a contract, then after she come back and then she remember, she said, it's amazing. She said, when you actually look past the presentation, the walls aren't finished properly, you know, the, the, the timber floors don't match throughout the home. She said, all of a sudden you see it's actually an unrenovated mm. or, you know, mm. it's, it's, not a, it's not a fully renovated house. But on the visual, if you don't look through it, you walk out going, wow, what a great, great home this is, take the furniture out of it, then you've got a pretty standard run-of-the-mill house. I think that's with the white chalk wall sometimes as well, that quick patch-up jobs, they've put the cheap paint on, it yeah, hides yeah, all the blemishes yeah, and things like that. And, yeah. you know, from an uneducated buyer, you think it's beautifully painted, but they've just used the cheap paint just to hide stuff, you know, yeah. and, and things like it that. It goes beyond that, though. I mean, I, I remember a house that was actually owned by a film stylist. Now, oh. she just styled... She basically set up like a film set. So if you think what a film set is, it's usually inside an empty building and they just basically create an entire house or an entire whatever they've created inside this building. That's effectively what she'd done. She created a renovated house inside an unrenovated house. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It was incredible. And mm, same amazing. deal. The buyers just looked, didn't didn't notice. Same as gardens, you know, pot plants that are, you know, that, that are potted, mm. you know, and they look beautifully done. You know, Edward Caesar's hands been in and, and groomed it to its absolute nth yeah. degree. But come time, those pot plants leave the house and you've got an empty, you know, concrete backyard again. Can you overstyle though? As in styling can be quite intimidating for people in terms of I don't think I can recreate this. I haven't got the furniture. I haven't got the – and sometimes people kind of – they've seen it 
you know, beautiful and they kind of feel like it's never going to look this good. Do you, ever, do you think that's possible? I don't know if I've ever got a reaction in that way, but what I can say is that, you know, when you have certain size rooms with furniture that fit that room, this is where you get into issues with buyers. It's like, well, hang on, we can't fit a dining table in here. You know, mm. I mean, yes, you've got a dining table here, but it's quite small or our lounge doesn't fit or I can't tell you how many deals I've lost because the fridge doesn't fit type stuff. Yep. Isn't it's it like, buy a new fridge. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It is interesting, isn't it? On one hand, it's, yes, buy a new fridge. You know, I have this conversation with clients as well. They're yeah. moving out and they've got this, you know, 10-seater dining table, whatever, and they're downsizing. Like, you might have to let go of the dining table. But on the other hand... You think, okay, but it is a really small kitchen. It's only ever going to be a small kitchen. And if you can't cope with a small kitchen, then you shouldn't be buying this house. Yes. You know, so there's there's two sides to that, isn't there? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, if that's one of their non-negotiables, mm. big kitchen, big big fridge, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, you can see why. But uh, I tell you, people often, like you say, they don't see beyond and see what they're actually buying. I, I remember I sold a, a house once that was a three-level terrace and it had all these rooms in it. And it could have been a five-bedroom house because of the, the way the rooms were, or it could have been one bedroom with all these living spaces. In effect, the owners were a couple and they only had one bed in the house. And a guy walks out on the inspection one day, looked at me and said, wow, it's a really big one-bedroom house, isn't it? And I, I thought he was taking the piss. I really did. But then I realised he actually meant it. He physically only saw one bed and so he counted it as a one-bedroom mm. house. But that, again, Veronica, comes back to, you know, again, it's the conversations that we have daily with these with, with the owners. You know, they've got a three-bedroom home for argument's sake. One of the rooms is set up as study. It's like, no, you need to get rid of that study and put a bed in there. They're like, but it's a bedroom. It's like, no, it's a study. For a lot mm. of buyers walking through that front door, they'll walk out going, it's a two-bedroom house plus study. Mm. You've got to paint the picture for certain. Not, not, I'm not saying people are silly, but you do have to paint us the picture for cert, a certain amount of, of people that are out there looking. They, they can't see through that. Well, it comes back to what else they're seeing in the marketplace and if, if the other listings have the, pa- yeah. the picture painted for them, then they don't need to think too much, do yeah. they? I yeah, mean, yeah. and this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to get buyers to think. <laughs> I think it goes the other way as well when you're putting a, a bed in a study and it's you're trying to sell it as a three-bed when it probably should be a two-bed and a study. <laughs> Absolutely, and I get that, but I'm talking yeah. about a bedroom that is a yeah, proper bedroom. Yeah. yeah, I know. I agree, the same thing. I mean, I've got a property on the market at the moment. It's a, it's a, it's a two-bedroom unit, but it's advertised as a one-plus study, and the owner fought with me a fair bit on us. Look, I'm sorry, you're going to get the wrong buyer to the property. Yeah. yeah. You can't fit a double bed in there. Yep. You go for it if that's what you – I'll do it if you want me to, yeah. but I'm going to tell you now that the wrong buyer will turn up and you won't sell yeah. the property. Yeah, disappointment yeah. and they're not going to buy it. Yeah. I mean, I'm really fascinated around, you know, it's been a very hot market. I imagine selling a property hasn't been a problem about finding buyers for the last five or so yeah, years. Yeah, it's been pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, in a more of an even market, it's, it's all about kind of match, finding the right buyer. And how do you know that? How do you, what are they offering you and how are they behaving that when you pick up that phone call or you're on the phone to them, this is the one? And how, how soon do you do that and do you do that? I think firstly it comes down to, I mean, it's, again, real estate has changed so, so much and for the better, um, absolutely for the better over, over my, my career span anyway. Um, you know, there's a big emphasis now on trying to help buyers. Um, I have one person who I employ who sits in my team just to look after buyers. 20 years ago, I didn't care about buyers. Do you know what I mean? We, we didn't – that's not where the industry was. It wasn't – a you know – I think 20 years ago, the industry was a transactional industry. Today, it's very much a relationship 
and service industry. So it has changed a lot. And I do think that a lot of the time now you're working with these buyers quite some time, hopefully before you get to, you know, to introducing them to some of these homes. So you've got a quite amount of information behind, um, you know, in the database on them already, which will hopefully in turn help you understand what are the triggers that they're, that, you know, and the emotional things that they're looking for. And then in turn, hopefully when is that right time to try and make a move to get them to, to, to close the deal. And this is sort of interesting from my point of view too, because I know that as a as a buyer, you you want to guard your information. You don't want the agent knowing too much about you. But then, if you don't let the agent know enough about you, then how can the agent help you? So this is a real knife edge, isn't it? That's exactly one of the points that I made a note of before I come in here well, today, and that tell is, us more. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, um, I, I said to Matthew yesterday, I said, you know, I'm 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 coming here today. I said, give me give me an idea because you talk to the buyers a lot. I said to him, you know, tell me tell me the frustrations. He said, communication. He said, the buyers don't want to communicate with you. A lot of buyers don't want to talk to you. They don't want to tell you. And it's quite a So I think you're quite approachable. Well, I think it's the attitude. There's two things. They don't, they, they, some of them don't want to speak to you. And the second thing is they, when they give you a budget, they give you a lesser amount, which mm. doesn't help because we can yep. give them a better product to look at if we have the right budget. Yep. Now, we can't make you spend your money unless you want to spend it. Let's no. get real about this. I mean, I saw something on social media the other day where a, um, a, a person on, on Facebook was having a go at an article that we I was mentioned in the City Morning Herald, and they were trying to suggest that a real estate agent um, – elevates the price of the property and makes these buyers buy the home. That's not true. The elevation comes from competition. You wish you could, don't you? I wish I could. I (laughs) I would be a very rich man if I could do such things. But elevation of a property, Mm. if the property price goes up, it's because it's got competition. It's like anything, you know, supply and demand. Or fear. Yeah, yeah fear the, of competition, yeah. which is why people make an, a pre-auction offer Exactly, often. which we don't have a lot of in this new marketplace, no. as you know, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I think if you can be as real as you can with agents out there, and, and you'll work out good agents and bad agents. Yep. You know, it doesn't take long to work out who's being honest and who's not being honest. You know, it's it's pretty pretty transparent. And, and again, you know, transparency, um, you know, even coming down to um, being real and, and, and honest down to what you're quoting in the marketplace. A lot of properties are passing in. Well, four, four and a half out of 10 properties are passing in in our marketplace mm. at the moment. You know, it's around a 65% clearance rate. So Actually, it's three and a half. Your mass is out. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I'm speaking to me just in my little core area. <laughs> See, he's, 2. Already, 6 he's already just trying to <laughs> <laughs> rubbery figures. Um, but it's interesting because you'll soon work out who is genuine and who's not because when these properties come back to market, have a look at the guide that was on it compared to the price that they're now mm. putting on it. And you'll soon be able to work out who are the ones that you should go and speak to who are generally going to be able to help you and be honest and straight with you in the process of buying a home. I mean, I imagine that's not a problem you have being in the area for so long. And that's one of the benefits of being an agent and not jumping around like any, yes. you know, you've, you know, the streets, you know, all the properties, you know what they've sold. You're actually someone they need to get on side from a buyer's point of view. Chances are you're probably going to be selling it. The, the properties that they want in a few months. So actually getting to know you, why should they be fearful? Because, you know, the more that you know about them as a buyer, the more yeah. likely you're going to help them. Absolutely. And yeah. so the budget's a funny thing because I deal with clients before they've even gone to a real estate agent because they've got to get their pre-approval set up. And and generally not many people are going all the way up to their nth degree and there is flexibility on budget. There's a mental hurdle around I don't want to spend more than one point two. But a lot of buyers can't be that specific. They have to be a little bit flexible because if the right property does come up at 1.3, they probably could stretch, you know. Yes, they've got they might have to find a little bit more for a deposit. And so even with a budget, 
Now, buyers don't really, they shouldn't really have fixed budgets because, you know, if you get two properties and, and want a little bit better. I mean, obviously, you know, and, and you know better than this what I do, Chris, obviously they've got to have a budget of some sort, but I agree. I mean, now we ask the question once we get the budget and we start to work with this buyer a bit more and build the rapport and the relationship. And we don't just send them to our properties. We'll, Matthew will get on the line and go, did you see this property is being sold by our competitor down the road? You know, end of the day, it's a service. And hopefully when they come time to sell that home, 10 years, 20 years time, they might come back and give us an opportunity to chat to them then as well. So, you know, it's it's all for the better. But, um, you know, I mean, $100,000, Ronica, as you know, can make a big difference in the yeah. product that you end up buying. So if you can be a little bit more... I don't know, I don't want to sound like buyers aren't transparent, but a little bit more upfront and what your budgets could possibly be and how yep. far you could possibly stretch for that right property, then you're going to get more opportunities. I, I'd put it out there and say a lot of buyers don't really know how far they are prepared to go. And and I know that this is a process we put our clients through at the beginning of the search. It's something we've refined over many years and it's, it's essential for us now. And we call it our very, very boring. It's called a getting started session. But there are three Ps to every property search, right? There's the price or the budget. There's the property itself, the property characteristics, and then there's the position or the location. And one of them typically is going to flex more than the other two. And one thing we have to tackle at the outset is to say, okay, this is what you get for the budget you've given us. Now, forget your flex for a minute. We don't know what your flex is until you tell us what your flex is. This is how much you need for the perfect property. And we actually mm. go through and show them recent sales and show them the perfect property is going to cost you an extra X amount of dollars. Now, some clients have the flex and then when you show them that, they go, oh, I get it now. Let's just go out looking with a revised maximum budget because I realise that if I see the perfect property, I will go to that level. Others yeah. can't budge and so it's good to get that off the table. But but it is really important because what what – for years ago, you know, when I first started doing this, we'd find people who had been looking for months, years in, in fact at times, and then they're always chasing the market because it takes them a while to realise they need to spend more money. And there are sweet spots, aren't there? So there's a, mm. there are sweet spots within the market. So an extra 100 grand might buy you that extra bedroom or the car space, whereas in other price points, that extra 100 grand won't make much of a difference. Yeah. It's important to know the difference, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, again, why buyers' agents are so great these days because if you're having those conversations with your buyers now, then obviously the opportunities aren't going to be missed down the track for your buyer. Um, yeah, because I do think that there's a lot of opportunities that get missed by not getting this right at the beginning. Yeah. And so I think also this idea about, you know, you're not the only agent that's told us that it's a changing um, emphasis. You know, the idea of telling buyers about listings that other agents have, for instance. Now, it's, so therefore, you know, you said it's not transactional anymore. And that's sort of interesting too, because that sort of pulls back and says, well, this is a much bigger picture approach to to property and, and to being in the game than, you know, the quick smash and grab type yeah. or, the, or the, the new entrants that have come into the market in the middle of the boom and have just been enjoying the fact that, that they just standing at an open house and getting offers. You know, are you finding that more and more of your competitors are doing the same thing? Yes. Or, yeah. So Very then much. what's the next frontier then? I mean, how are you going to differentiate yourself next? VR. <laughs> <laughs> but it's coming. It's yeah. Coming. I'm, I'm, I can't, I kind of can't wait for it. I think it's going to be uh, uh, lots of opportunity. Virtual reality. Yeah. 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 I'm really, I'm really well, interested. The, the Matterport, you know, is only growing, isn't it? Where you go for a visual tour around the home, yeah. you know, with the listings. I think it'll be good as well. I mean, you know, I, I look at the amount of time that buyers spend in a house before they buy it. It's not long. Oh, it's scary. 
We spend more time in our cars before we buy our cars than what we do in a house, where if you've got the visual reality there, you can spend quite a bit of time on these things, exploring and looking and doing these things, hopefully in, you know, if, if the software allows it to, and I'm sure it will, and you can get, get, get more engagement in the property before you make that final decision because people spend $2 million and they spend 10, 15 minutes in a house. I mean, on that point, you know, people are naturally feel like they want to do the right thing by you. They don't want to waste your time. If you're my buyer, I don't want to wait the, waste the real estate agent's time. But should a buyer be, I guess, concerned about asking to see the property three, four, five, six times? Or is that, from an agent's point of view, do you see that as a good sign? Yeah, it's a good sign in, in, in some regards, as long as they're qualified, ready to go. But obviously, you'll go through that process you know, before you get to having five appointments. Well, with does them. every buyer, not just, I guess, some clients who might see me, but just generally, does every client get their finance sorted prior to? No, no. And some think that they have got it finances approved and they don't. I had a house. (laughs) We had a house in in Newtown the other day where, um, you know, we had it going to auction. Um, We quoted 1.4 on the property. All the buyers said, you know, no, no, no. They, you know, the experience they're having with underquoting, they thought we wanted 1.6. We pulled it from auction. We put a price of 1.398 on it and uh, we had a buyer within 10 minutes ready to go. We exchanged with five-day cooling off because that tends to be the way that you do it with private treaty at the moment with the banks because they want to see a contract signed before they'll value the property, et cetera. But they had no idea about their finance. They had no idea whatsoever. They ended up – they we – we had, were in a 10-day cooling off and they ended up realising that they just didn't have the budget to buy the home and mm. they lost their money. Mm. You know, they lost oh, their 0.25%. Yeah, oh, I right, mean, yeah. you know, I mean, it's only a few thousand dollars, but it's a few thousand dollars. Mm. So it's inconvenient for you too. Well, I mean, because, we've lost opportunities, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, I've got the property back on the market now. Mm. It's like my owner, unfortunately, is, you know, in Not some happy. regards, has, <laughs> has lost lots of opportunity because we gave them that 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 time, mm. which you kind of have to do to get the yeah. sale done. Yeah. But in this occasion, the buyer just wasn't up to speed and they work for the bank. Mm. <laughs> wow, there you go. So and it just shows you. Yeah, I, look, I've definitely seen that, that buyers um, underestimate what's involved. I'm sure, Chris, you, I mean, how much longer is it taking to get finance approved these days and how many more hoops are uh, buyers having to jump through? The major thing that drives whether you can borrow money or not is servicing. Generally, it's not really the deposit. Yes. Servicing calculators every, you know, week or every month, the banks are having to update them because they're having to be more conservative because APRA is basically telling them off more and more. Yes. And, you know, they're not they're not realising that maybe they got a pre-approval 12 months ago or they've had a pre-approval before, but that's on the old calculators, the new yeah. calculators, or their policy might change around maternity leave or part-time. And, you know, policy changes from the banks. So I guess it's people just aren't aware that how much policy change has actually happened and um, are just assuming that it should be right, mate. And, uh, you know, when you're buying a, a $2 million property, it's not okay if you haven't got the cash in 42 days. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, so I was, a, I mean, you would mm. know, again, better than me, Chris, but I was reading the other day recently where, you know, all these changes are coming through from APRA at the moment and uh, the inquiry at the moment with the banks, et cetera, they're saying, you know, there was some article I was reading where they were saying, you know, if you if you earn, oh, I think it was, was it $80,000 or $100,000 a year, they're suggesting that the, the loan maximum is going to be something around $200,000. Yeah, so um, that's, our, that's our good friends at UBS. And that's, um, like, scary. Uh, UBS. <laughs> Uh, you know, highly conflicted. UBS wants to crash the property market. So if you type in UBS and property reports, uh, okay. uh, they, are the, they are the worst, which I'm just going to throw it out there. Yep. Uh, uh, can I just jump in there? Because uh, seriously, there was a – I wrote a blog on this a couple of years ago. You know, the Australian property market is overvalued by 7.5% 
UBS. And and that's the type of headline that that, that comes out of their um, economists or their PR department. And I just, it does my head in. Why, what's behind all that? I mean, that? they're the Steve <laughs> Keen, you know, the market's going to fall by 40%. You mm. know, they've done, they're the liar loans. They're the, you know, UBS are, you know, very regularly writing, you know, um, reports. But what they're talking about there is, is that borrowing capacities could fall 40% mm. if the banks did look in detail at people's living expenses. Yes, that's And it, yes. if they did do that, which, you know, this week Westpac have actually started to say that they are going to do it more and more, um, it is, you know, going to have huge ramifications on it. So yeah. um, it's something just to watch this space at the moment though. It is interesting. So I was reading that report the other day and I, and I was thinking, okay, well, that's fine. People can't borrow as much as they could borrow before. It's really going to only going to impact on prices though if people start to have to sell, right? So if they can continue to service the loan they've already got, but they can't actually go and borrow more money to upgrade or whatever they're going to do, and so they sit tight, they just wait. But what about the buyer coming into the marketplace that's already Correct, got the lesser yeah. amount of money? So how does that well, – what I, Or what does I'm the rich – is it the rich people who are going to continue to buy houses because they're the ones who can only afford it now? still people – and, you know, you know that upper end of the market has got lots of buyers in at the moment. Yeah, so this is it, interesting. There is still money out there. I'm not necessarily certain who's got it. But the thing is, though – if people don't transact because they don't upgrade or they don't downsize even because of this, then it's just going to, the whole market will grind to a halt. It won't mm. necessarily be that prices fall. It'll just be the stop, be no stop sales. transacting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then state government will lose their taxes and they'll have to change it again. Yes. <laughs> but, I mean, it's interesting. I don't think we've been here before. That's the thing. I mean, this is not a. Um, but it's kind of happening now to a degree. Um, again, you know, Veronica, you'd see this, you know, once every seven years was the average of people who hold their houses. Yes. It's way longer than that now. Mm. I was looking at statistics the other day in Stanmore um, of house sales um, 20 years ago, 15 years ago to today. The volume that was going on 20 years ago is unbelievable yeah. compared wow. to the okay. volume that we're seeing now. So less and less people yes. are turning their houses over. Yep. It's expensive to sell a house, to buy a house, so they're staying put. And, and even when you look mm. at the comparable of, well, oh, we could upgrade, but it means 500 grand plus costs and, you know, we might not get it and so Absolutely. let's just stay here. Yeah. And, you know, if you think in a world of you know, five, ten years' time, that's only going to get worse. Yeah, I, um, I agree. Which makes it even better when you actually got one of those properties because yes. there's going to be less and less supply, more and more competition for the ones that do hit the market um, and that, that process will kind of continue. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, what has caused the, the boom in recent years. There's a lot of talk about that. But one of the, the sources of data that we use is PriceFinder. And there's you've probably looked at this, Michael, and, and there's a suburb flyover that they offer, right? So you go in there and you plug in your suburbs. So it might be Stanmore and you plug in houses. And there's this nice little graph that shows you the volume of sales so the amount of property that have sold every year and then the median price. And over the last five years, that gap between the median going up and the volume going down, there's this neat little triangle on every single graph in every single property type in every suburb that we operate in. It's one of the reasons I go for this 10K radius thing. But you, you see that play out, that as more people, as the value of property goes up, the transactions go down. And then that pushes the prices up. I mean, why would you sell when prices are going up? You well, don't. You don't want to upgrade, do you? Because well, well, <laughs> well, if, my price, if my property was worth a million last or well, two years ago, now it's worth one point three, 
you know, momentum's behind the market or let's just hold it for another year. Why are we we're crazy to sell? I want, one question I'm going to ask you, it's a bit of a knife edge and I guess it's a challenge for agents. One side, the a buyer will be thinking, oh, I want to be friends with the agent so they're going to help me. But you're really there to represent the vendor. How do you play that game where I've got to look out for the vendor's interest here, but I've also got to look out for the buyer's interest? And where's the line? Where's, where's oversharing? Where's undersharing? How do you? At the end of the day, your client is your vendor, and that's your number one priority is to make sure that you do the best possible job for them without a doubt. I mean, you know, that, that goes without saying. But that doesn't mean that you can't have a relationship with buyers and build rapport with buyers. I talk about buyers in my market appraisal with my owners. I think it's important that they understand that you've got the ability to, to build rapport with these buyers and to help them. I mean, it comes back to, I think, again, the shift in the profession, you know, of the more recent year. And that is, yeah, we do represent our vendors, but we have got an opportunity to give a service to a buyer and to help a buyer, then why not do that? Mm. As long as do you, you- think your vendors care about the buyers in yes. terms of who they are, what they do, what, you know, how- Probably they, not, maybe so, not so, much so much who what they, they do. are and what they do, but, but so they much. certainly care about you treating a buyer with respect and being upfront with the buyer. And they understand negotiation is a win-win process. I mean, mm. as much as they want to get that final price, they if you read some of the testimonials I'll get, my vendors talk about, you know, that we did look after the buyer, not that we jeopardised their sale or got them a lesser amount. I flip it around the other way and go, well, look, if we look after a buyer and we can build rapport with the buyer, then hopefully we've got a bit more trust or they've got a bit more trust with us. So hopefully that means that we can have a bit more real conversation and maybe get you a bit more money because they trust the agent. Dropping a barrier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not saying that's always the case, but there's... (laughs) Beware the friendly agent. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think there is a... I do think there's a responsibility um, in today's real estate world for you to give a certain level of service to a buyer, without a doubt even though they're not your client. And then the bidding war that sometimes happens prior to auctions, you know, when you've got a really good offer on the table, yes. you know, and you're a buyer that really is really keen, but I haven't seen the property enough. How do you, how do you play that for that buyer? If that's the case, then obviously you try and get them back into the home as soon as possible, but it'd have to be far, rather quick. We have a process where if we were to say um, okay to an offer, um, you know, you know, sometime this afternoon, we'd be wanting to have the deal done by midday tomorrow, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in a lot of ways, um, you know, your your buyer has to be ready on the financial sides and all of that. But if it's just the last throws of making a decision, well, get get them back there, mm. get them into that home, get them and into that property. If you were a buyer, what sort of offer would you make if you had to make an offer on a it's property? Hard, isn't it? Because it depends on how the process works. Some agents go, they'll tell you the buyer, the the the, the, um, the offers. The offers. Mm. Others will say, we're not going to give you um, uh, the what it is. You've got to put your best final last. Yeah, there's no rule. No, there's no rules at all. Um, you know, in a hot market, um, I tend to follow best final. Ah, uh, sorry, your best final last. Don't tell you. You know, you just got to mm. come forward. Which is a when I take. When I, when I put the shoe on, on the other foot, I go, wow, I would hate to be in that situation because it's a hard situation to be in. Yeah, it, look, it is a hard situation. I have to tell you that as a buyer's agent, as a selling agent, I used to do best and final. I, I found that it you're more transparent if you gave very, very clear directions in terms of what the, what the parameters were. And I also used to say, don't give it to me on a contract. I will give you, you know, 12 hours or however many hours 
to actually exchange. Yes. Um, and in one scenario, actually, the first two buyers fell over. I ended up selling it to the third one for the two thousand dollars less. But so because I had the respect of those buyers through that process, but I also recognise uh, that, and that was only after a few horrible experiences where I was learning to do it and yeah. did it awfully, and buyers hate you. So you sort of think, well, that's not working. <laughs> but as a buyer's agent now. You know, I will always ask, well, what process will you follow yes. if this happens? And you will get agents that have got no idea how to handle it and you've got others that are very clear on, on, on how it's going to work and others that will shop every every offer around. And to be quite frank, I'd rather go to auction than have yeah. that happen. Um, I, I completely agree with you on that. I think there's two things there. One is the agent needs to know the process because if you get an offer, it's the agent's responsibility to go back to that buyer and say, okay, your offer is accepted, but to, there is there are certain terms that it's accepted under, and that is that we are going to follow this process. And if you don't like that process, then mm. the offer is not accepted because they have the right to say, no, we don't want this to happen. Mm. And if you're not clear with your buyer, then that's, that's the wrongdoing of the agent, in my opinion, yeah. because if you were to do that process or you'd accept that offer and not explain the process to the buyer, then... I don't blame them for being pissed with you from not for, if they find out what you're going to do. I'm with you again. I, I don't like shopping um, offers around. I hate it. Um, I, I think it's, it's messy. Um, I feel like it's not – I almost – sometimes when I hear it, I think, oh, God, is it a real, is it a real offer? Mm. Do you know what I mean? How real are these people? Um, but then you also know from a buyer point of view that when you – say, for example, you say the offer is 1.5 and I say I'll give you 1.55, you're going to shop my offer. Yeah, exactly right. Well, what I do is I do it, um, uh, we, and we're really strict on the process. I won't change it for nobody. Do you know what I mean? Because mm. it's not fair on anybody if you change it partway through because you've got to be fair to every single yeah. player out there. It's not – end of the day, you work for your vendor, not for a buyer, so you've got to be fair to all your buyers. We, I do it in a way that, okay, um, if we accept your offer, you need to bring your contract into our office, unconditional, and we park it. That way I know you're absolutely real and I can exchange you straight away yeah. with my vendor. I've got no risk of losing the deal um, or wrecking the auction process for my owner. Yeah, because that's that's an important point there that, you know, one of the reasons in a hot market that a lot of agents don't want to go down this process is because they don't want to ruin the auction campaign. You know, once you start on this path, absolutely. the auction's done. It is. You know, you've, you really got to it sell it. Yeah. yeah. So I do that and then I will then go to all of our buyers and I only go to the contract holders. Um, obviously, yep. that you know, I mean, really, you can't go in a hot market, especially you can't go through two hundred people. Um, so, and I let that, I make it very clear to a contract holder because people come and they go, "Oh, we're interested in the property, blah blah blah." Um, you know, if there's any offers, let us know. It's like, well, you kind of need to take a contract if that's the case because they're the ones that we will target if that happens. Yeah, that way you won't miss out. Absolutely. So there's a tip for buyers here, and we've said it before. Um, Get the contract. Show let the, the agent, agent that you're interested, yeah. and the best way to do that is by taking a copy. Absolutely. Of the we know, and then all of a sudden, we know we have to speak with you and include you in all process. So at Parks, we go through the process and, and you, you make a call, you send a text message and you send an email. Three processes so it's all transparent and you can track back to the buyer. Because some buyers are going to go, oh, you didn't tell us. It's like, well, actually we did. Here's your email. Here's your text message. Mm. You may not have picked up the phone, mm. um, et cetera. And then you've got the buyers who say, oh, you know, can't you tell me what it is? It's like, okay, I'm going to put the, I'm going to put the scenario to you. Let's say the property sold, is selling for $1.5 million. You think it's worth $1.65 million and you're prepared to pay that. I tell you 1.5, so you give me 1.55. And then somebody else who I didn't speak to who just put their best offer forward offers 1.6, I've just lost the property for you because you would have paid 1.65 or, one, you know, whatever the difference is. So I try to explain to a to a purchaser, I know it's a crappy process, but 
if you do put your best foot forward, at least you know you've done the best job because if mm. I tell you and you pull back on what you're prepared to, it doesn't mean the third person I've spoken to isn't going to give a better mm. price. And a lot of buyers, they try this to try to second guess and they're trying to work it. I get it's hard though, Veronica. Outs- I would hate it. It's very hard. It's extraordinary it. hard. But I think and this is where I think it's important to ask what the process is because then that can form your opinion. If you are not prepared to go to your maximum on a, on a slam, on a sudden death situation yeah. like this, then you've got to realise that there's a big chance that you might you lose miss. it for a price you'd be prepared to pay. And that's the question you've got to ask yourself. Yeah, I mean, the standard line I've always heard from real estate agent, when it's, you know, really show me buying a property if it's a good property. You know, that's what my philosophy is. You should only buy in quality. If it's not, then you're, you know, you should be really considering to rent it rather than buy it. Um, you know, but if you are buying a property, you know, and it's a good property, you know, for the last six years, a lot of the time it's been going to auction. And so, you know, it's pretty much the only route. And if you are going to go to an open home for a property that's going to go to an auction, a real estate agent is going to just basically say, one thing to you and look, we're not taking offers and it's going to go to auction and you don't even start that process. Yep. Um, how does a buyer, buyer doesn't want to go to auction. You know, we've just spoke to a few auctioneers and the, the, how an auction can potentially <laughs> um, take you in the wrong direction. And, you know, it's there to get the best price. Yes. How does an how does a buyer get you at least into a price conversation that they know they're going to be involved with potentially making a deal? Is there a way? Again, it'll come down to the heat of the marketplace for me. If it's a really hot market, I, I would I would just much prefer to say there is no offers. And I'll ask my owner before. And in a really hot market that we've come out of, if you go and look at the back of my agency agreements, I'll get my owner to write on it. I will not accept any offers in campaign. Okay. Or I will not accept any offers in campaign that are not on a contract, blah, 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 blah. So mm. if you want to come make a verbal offer and not do your research or your homework, then we're not going to take it. So I, there are ways that you can try and push back at the buyer because at the end of the day, I would much prefer as a buyer, and I know buyers don't like the auction process, but unfortunately that's how you buy houses in this marketplace in this particular part of, of, of the country. You know, go go somewhere else, country New South Wales, you probably find private treaties how they do it. No issue at all. But for here, unfortunately, it's the way that we do do it. Um, but I always say to a buyer, at least on the auction floor, you can eyeball your competitor and you know it's a transparent process. You know what's going on. Once we start this process on a telephone, mm. it's not transparent. Oh, absolutely. It's blind as. It's horrible. Mm. Yeah. So I try to I try to give examples to a buyer of why they should reconsider about coming to an auction floor rather than getting into a conversation about an offer. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. as the market changes, it becomes very different. Now we're very happy to talk about offers. Yes. Yeah, so this is mm. where buyers beware. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you know. If the agent's suggesting an offer or, oh, yeah, or pushing in that direction, then you yeah, know, go to the Matthew that works with me sort of said, can I, can I maybe suggest like, no, don't do that because you're giving the, you're, you're basically telling your purchaser that it, you probably don't have a lot of competition and you're losing the ability to negotiate for your vendor. Well, for the last six years, the only properties that are taking offers is is that, and that's generally a massive warning sign for the reason not to be buying the property because everything else was just yeah. selling, you know. And Yeah, but, but the, when the elephant's in control, the elephant goes, oh, great, I have an opportunity not to compete, and they go and buy a dog. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> but you'll know when a, you, you, you tend to, again, a good tip for buyers, you, you know an agent will know and a buyer's agent will know when the market is turning before a buyer will know because there's early signs that we see that yep. make us prick our ears. Before our market turned um, last year, we knew, you know, the banks were coming and hitting hard already. It's like, 
in the background, I was thinking, mm. don't hit too hard because the market's changing now. You don't buyers don't know that yet, but there are signs out there. Um, and one of the signs is that if you start to see property sell prior to auction, that's a fair sign. If yep. you come out, if you're in a really strong market, then maybe that market is changing. Yes. It's the it's smoke and mirrors strong. of auction clearance rates. And because the sold prize are included in the clearance rates, um, you know, you can – who we, we have chat with Matt Hasten about this, weren't we? And we were talking about – he was saying that he doesn't believe that those sold prize should be included in the clearance rates. Then the, the flip side of that argument is but the auction process actually got that buyer on the table and, you know, got that contract signed prior. So it, it, it's a whole podcast yeah. episode we could do. Dedicate. Depends on what you topic. call, you know, auction clearance rates as well. I mean, you know, in some regards, you're being sold prior. Does that mean there's only one buyer on the property? Um, but I, I, I tend to think they should be just all in one, um, and, and there's no real r- right or reason for mm. that. I just think, you know, it's 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 part of the process. Every week, we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Do you have a good example for us, Michael, of a dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Yeah, um, I think I think one that comes to mind, it's... Uh, uh, and the example is my sister and her partner Joanne were looking to sell their property in Canberra a few years ago. Um, I love so, the fact you've given away who it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I often t- I often use this example um, when you know I find when you're talking to people when selling houses and listing houses, examples are a great way to get messages across. So mm. on this occasion, you know, I knew what I could do for them, and that was I could come down and give them my knowledge of presentation. To me, that's what I can do for them because uh, they're, they're in another state. So I went there and I worked my guts out for three days in their garden and I got a stylist in and I said, let me do that side of it for you. They got to market. Now, they went to market in the first open house. They got an offer and they got an exceptionally good offer. But what they did was they rang me and asked me to give them advice. And this is my point. You need to be careful who you take advice mm. from when you're buying or selling in a home because... Family and friends think they're giving you the right information and they believe they're doing the right thing by you, but a lot of the time they're giving you the wrong information and they don't know that. And my point to to Sal and Joe was you need to go and speak to your agent. I am not going to make a comment because the chances are I'm going to give you the wrong information and it's going to cost you money at the end of it. It's a very good point. So what did they do? They went and spoke to their agent And that's what I said to them. You've chose this agent because you trust this agent and in your opinion, they're the best person to represent you. So go and talk to them. They went and spoke to them and they exchanged the property and And it was sold. So the Dumbo there was what they could have done or they're lucky that the person they asked for advice actually gave them good advice, which was actually go back to your agent who you've chosen (laughs) to represent you. Um, But if they called someone else potentially who gave them the sort of advice that often well-meaning friends and family give, which is, oh, never take the first offer. And, in fact, there's a Freakonomics um, story on this. Have you heard of Freakonomics? Yes, yes. Yeah, so there's a Freakonomics story. We'll put the the link to the video of this in the show notes. And it is this, you know, economist and and a journalist have done some research and found that real estate agents in America their houses sit on the market longer than the average Joe. So their own houses they're trying to sell. Okay, yeah, right. They would they would list that on the market for say 50 days, but if it was your property and I'm trying to sell your property, I'll try to sell it in 10. 
Yes, and so the idea from an economist's point of view is saying that if, you know, over there the fees are generally 6% and it gets split between the buyer's broker Correct. and the um, vendor's broker. Yes. Um, and so they're basically saying 6% of an extra 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 is, is not much. Not And when you halve it in terms of the selling agent and all the rest of it, the actual difference to the agent is not significant enough for them to want to hold out the extra days marketing it, taking buyers through all the rest of it. So the output versus the import, it's not worth it. So they will encourage you, Mr. and Mrs. Vendor, to sell your property quickly. But when it comes to selling their own property, they'll take as long as it takes to get the perfect buyer at their highest possible price. So um, it is interesting, isn't it? Because but I look at this and, you know, if I had said to them, you know, I mean, obviously it's, they've got to make their own decisions, but if I had said to them, you know, um, and, I, and I probably would have done if I wasn't in real estate, I would have said, no, don't take the first offer. But the chances are mm. that, you know, the next offer may not be there. And it's a bit like this marketplace now. I say to my owners at the moment, if you get an offer in the first week, and I have this conversation when I'm listing their property, because there's no point having it when you get that offer, because all of a sudden yep. you do, you're not genuine. Yes. Yep. But in that listing presentation, there are certain things I will cover. And one is that if you get an offer first up early, don't run away from it. Don't shy away from it. Let's get in and see what we can do with it because it might be that one buyer because the chances are there's only one. And that maybe that one buyer you're pushing away and the next offer you get may not come for some time and it may not be that price again. And, and that's the power of picking the right agent to sell your property because I guess if you haven't got that real trusted relationship and that trusted agent absolutely knows the market who can actually say to you and you have zero doubt they're trying to force you to sell because they're too busy and they're just trying to get a transaction and I mean that's only that's a gut feeling really and you're only going to get that if you really believe that the person selling the property yeah. is telling you the, the right advice. Hence, Chris, why you have that conversation at the listing because then yeah. at least, do you know what I mean? If I, if I was um, selling my- set to sell? Is that, yeah, yeah. That? well, I mean, it's, just, it's just, I don't know, it's just stuff over my years of selling. I've realised that, you know, it's like anything. I mean, if I was selling my house and an agent said to me, you know, you should take it, uh, you know, the offer, but didn't tell me beforehand, the chances are if you get an offer early, it might be the only one, mm-hmm. then my approach to it would be very different if they told me that at the beginning because all of a sudden I feel, like, okay, hang on a minute, this is a scenario that they gave me. So therefore, you know, yep. this is something that can happen and, and there's a bit more hopefully trust associated with that. And the key here is as well in terms of the Dumbo of the week that your sister called you her brother for advice. Now yeah. she's fortunate she got good advice because you're in the industry. Yes. But so the idea here, the Dumbo of the Week could have been if she called her brother who was not in the industry, you're going to get the sort of feedback and the sort of advice such as the free economics yeah. uh, theory, which is around a journalist and an economist um, giving effectively real estate advice. And they don't know enough in our, certainly in our market, maybe it is, does apply mm. in, the, in the US, but certainly in our market, the logic might be there, yes, hold out longer, but is it really likely and what are the risks associated yeah, with that? 100% agree. I think it's how to avoid being a dumbo, that one. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. That's been extremely insightful and been very forthcoming with everything that you've shared um, and I really appreciate you taking some time. Veronica, Chris, thank you. It's been great to come along and, um, and have a chat and hopefully you know, hopefully, there's something in there for, for a buyer and a seller. There's a lot in there, Michael, and I have to say that, you know, I've, worked with you many times on opposite sides of the uh, the negotiation table. <laughs> uh, the insights I've gained from talking to you today have been fabulous as well. So thank you so much for coming. Pleasure. Thank you.
We want to make you a better elephant rider. This week's elephant rider training is... One thing I really picked up from the interview with Michael was that property styling can really lead buyers down the wrong track. And seeing beyond the styling is really, really important. And he did say uh, in one particular example that he gave about buyers that were looking at the detail of the property. So I guess that's a really interesting thing for buyers to be aware of, that they can be hoodwinked, if you like, or they can be misled by presentation. They need to look beyond. They need to look at actually what they are buying. So is the kitchen, for instance, what it is? You know, are those tiles what they are? Have they been sanded back and painted, for instance? Is it a look and feel that you're falling for or is it the actual fundamentals of the property? Has it been freshly painted? Is that covering up a myriad of sins in terms of rising damp or whatever it is? So it's very much looking past the presentation of the property. That is this week's Elephant Rider training is to go and train yourself to look beyond presentation. So, Veronica, what have we got to add to the Elephant Memory Bank this week? Well, this week, Chris, I think we should put the video for that Freakonomics article. So there's actually a video that explains the economic rationale behind why they think that real estate agents take longer to sell their own homes than they do to sell their clients' homes. So we'll pop that in the show notes at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Tune in for our next episode when we interviewed John Cunningham. Now, John was the president of the REI in New South Wales, and now he's spearheading the pathway to professionalism with the REIA, or the Real Estate Institute of Australia. We had a very, very interesting chat with John, really about what the future looks like for real estate agents and whether, in fact, there will be as many agents in the future as there are today. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk and edited by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Me again. We're looking forward to spending more time with you and uncovering what's really going on in the world of real estate. Please subscribe. Be sure to send us a message, leave an iTunes review and tell your friends. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.